Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high-cash-flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Show, show number 10. It's important to recognize that the money in itself is not the happiness. The money is just the vehicle that enables you to explore the lifestyle that's going to make you happy. It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench, and I'm here with my co-host, Ms. Mindy Jensen. How are you doing, Mindy? Scott, I am doing fantastic today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We just interviewed a fantastic guest who has done some remarkable things in her life and has done it while living in a way she describes as luxuriously frugal. 
I love that term. That's so funny. So I'm actually friends with Liz, or you may know her as Mrs. Frugalwoods. I'm actually friends with her in real life. And we went and visited her this summer at her Vermont estate. And it is uh, amazing how well they live on how little they live on. And, you know, it's a conscious choice. She has a job. He has a job. And they choose to make these uh, make these changes. I don't even want to call them sacrifices. They choose to make these changes in their life so they can live the life that they want. They live on a, like I said before, it's a beautiful Vermont farm and they have everything they could possibly want. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. And it, by the way, in addition to the interview today, they also are coming out with a book. I think it's tomorrow when this pairs, right? Yes. So you want to talk about the book real quick? Well, so the book comes out tomorrow. It is called Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. And it's not a preachy book. It's not a book where they like make you feel bad about how you are currently living. It's here's how we did it. And these are ways that you can do it too. You can change the way that you live so you can live the life that you truly want, which is kind of what we're doing on this show. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. She is not about the money, it's about the happiness. And she was able to redesign kind of expensive lifestyle in an expensive city and realize, hey, that's not making me happy. What does make me happy is hiking, being part of, you know, being around nature, doing these things and optimizing my lifestyle uh, in such a way that I'm gonna enjoy things. And that includes for her, seltzer water. By the way, there's a very <laughs> cool tip later on in the show about uh, how to get as much bubbly water as you want. I drink a lot of La Croix. LaCroix, I don't know how to it, whatever it is, which is kind of a waste. So I'm definitely going to be thinking about giving up a Saturday to this project, which would be a very fun way to have unlimited seltzer water. I This post, I don't even drink seltzer water, but this post really resonated with me because it's here's how I gamed the system. Here's how I saw something that I wanted. I didn't want to give it up, but I figured out a cheaper way to achieve this same thing. And she did this, she does this in multiple areas of her life. And she tells us all about how she got yoga classes for free, how she hacked her system to her soda stream system to make pretty much free seltzer water. And they drink a lot of seltzer water. It's actually funny how frequently they're running that machine, but it costs them almost nothing. And they just how can I make this cheaper? So their version of frugality isn't how much can I give up? It's how cheap can I get everything that I want? I think, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And should we bring her in and let her tell us all these things? Yeah, we should let her tell her story. We, we don't just, need to tell we, her story. I, I just told half her story. <laughs> no, that's not true. She uh, has a lot of great things that, that we talk about today, and we just barely scratch the surface with this, with this intro. Yeah, so let's bring her in. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. I know it's it's difficult to have a 66-acre beautiful farmstead and then pull yourself back inside. What's the weather like out there in Vermont today? Well, it's not too hard to be inside today. We have freezing <laughs> rain. So Mindy has been here, but when she was here, it was beautiful, idyllic summer. So slightly different. It was really nice. <laughs> freezing rain is is yeah that's a lot easier to stay inside yeah no i, I go up to vermont every every year or so for uh christmas so we, we're in a house up there and a bunch of family comes together and it's it's a beautiful place to be in the winter but yes you don't spend much time outside it's nice for the fire by <laughs> inside 
So let's go, let's talk about how did you come to be in Vermont? What, how did this situation arise? Can you tell us a little bit? About, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your backstory and why you are living on a on a, in a farm right now and talking to us about personal finance? So my husband and I lived in cities for about a decade. We lived in New York City, Washington, D.C., Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually two different times. And what we came to realize over the course of living in all these cities is that we did not enjoy urban life. And finally, in March 2014, we asked each other, when are you happiest? And we both said when we're hiking. And so we were leaving the city almost every weekend to go hiking in the woods. And we came to this realization that we had misaligned our lifestyles. Here we were in the middle of the city working very standard nine to five, very good jobs. And we were not feeling fulfilled. We were feeling frustrated by this routine and feeling like we needed to escape the city. And so we started talking about this idea of where we wanted to go when we retired. And that conversation started out with retiring at 65. Where do we want to go? We really want to go to the woods. And then we started to think, maybe we could do it a little bit earlier. Maybe we could do it at 50 or at 40. And then we said, maybe we could do it at 32. And we came to that realization by carefully examining our finances, seeing where we were, and then projecting out how much we would need in order to reach financial independence and in order to leave the city and move out into the woods. And so that happened for us in May 2016. So we've lived out here for about a year and a half at this point, and we absolutely love it. It is truly our dream come true. And we love the ability to walk outside our door and hike and be in nature and raise our children in this way. And so it's been a wonderful move. And I think it's a a kind of an unconventional move to make because it's not actually less expensive to live in the country versus in the middle of the city, which is a, a really common misconception, but it is where we want to be. Well, so, so I think this is, this is awesome. Just like the concept, Oh, I'm going to start with what makes me happy where, where I'm, most, you know, where I want to actually spend my day to day. And then I'm going to figure out, okay, what I need to change over some time in order to make that a reality. So can we talk about that? When, when did you decide, like what, what was the time? I know you moved in May of 2016. When did you kind of begin coming to this realization and what, what was your position like? And then how did you move towards this goal? So it was March 29th, 2014. I can tell you exactly the day because it was... <laughs> It was a very pivotal conversation. It was one of those conversations that you remember. And it was the culmination of, I think, several years of hiking, realizing that we didn't necessarily want to live in the city, but not really seeing another route for ourselves, not really understanding financial independence as a concept, not understanding location independence for work. And so this was kind of the culmination of all of those thoughts that we'd been having over the years. And at that point, we were 29. And we were very fortunate that we'd had pretty good jobs throughout our 20s. So my first job paid $10,000 for the year, and I lived in New York City. I saved wow. $2,000. <laughs> wait, 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 stop. You saved $2,000 <laughs> while living in New York City, yeah. making $10,000 total. That is correct. Okay. So, that's... <laughs> so you could say frugality comes to me pretty naturally. Uh, <laughs> So that was through AmeriCorps, which is sort of like the domestic Peace Corps. So I was working in an underserved community for a nonprofit, gaining valuable work experience, being paid very little. I also had access to food stamps and a metro card. So it's important to know that, you know, food and transportation were covered, which are major expenses. So I was paying my rent and any other incidental expenses. And 
after that year, I was able to get increasingly well-paying jobs, which after $10,000 a year, you know, just about anything is a a better paying job. (laughs) I always worked for nonprofit organizations and my husband has always worked for mission-based organizations. So we were not making investment banker salaries. We were making very good white collar salaries and we were saving at a pretty high rate. So we didn't have debt. We did not have student loan debt, which I think is transformational for the beginning of our journey. And I think is a real element of privilege that we had coming into our 20s. We went to an inexpensive state school and we had scholarships. We both worked during school and our parents helped us to pay the rest of our tuition. And it just was not that expensive at the time. So coming out of school with no debt, we didn't have any consumer debt and we never took on any consumer debt. We got married very young at 24. It feels, that feels really young now. (laughs) Looking back at the time, we were like, well, of course, we're ready to get married. So fortunately it worked out and we lived well below our means. So we rented this basement apartment in Boston that was just not great, very below ground. (laughs) When did you move from New York to Boston? That was 2007. And then we got married in 2008 And we set a goal of buying a home in Cambridge, which as your listeners probably know, is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. We at 24 with, I think we had about $5,000. We're like, oh yeah, we're totally (laughs) going to do this. Now a studio, you know, a studio is half a million dollars. So what we were thinking, but having that really aspirational goal was very important. I would say that was transformational for us because it helped us to focus in on what we could do. So on the salaries that we made, we saved around 40 to 50%, which eventually led us up to a down payment. And we bought a home in Cambridge in 2012. And that was really kind of the culmination of our first financial goal. That was our first way of proving to ourselves, okay, we can save a lot of money. We can be focused and concerted with a financial goal. And I think it was having that end point that got us there. So at this point, fast forwarding back to 2014, when we're talking about wanting to leave the city, we had been saving at a pretty high rate. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and understand that, that we weren't starting from zero and we didn't have any debt other than the mortgage on our Cambridge property. So starting from a pretty good place of saving around 40 to 50%, we bumped ourselves up to over 70, sometimes over 80%. And we were able to reach this goal in a pretty short time frame with that really concerted push of saving at a much higher rate. So I think it's, you know, financial independence. And I think this trajectory can be possible for a lot of people, but I like to acknowledge kind of the good fortune and the luck that I had going into it. And really the privilege of not having student loan debt, of having a dual income household with, at that point, no kids and with having really pretty good paying careers. Well, you know, I think, I think some of this, it sounds like you're not giving yourself quite enough credit because you say dual income household, yet you started with a $10,000 a year salary. So, So yeah, I guess, I guess that could be, you know, part of a dual income, but no, this, I mean, this is an an awesome story here and it just speaks to consistent, you know, application of sound principles over time. And then that turning point, you know, you had, you had a goal to buy this home in 2012, which you did. And then you had the the turning point, you know, after you, I'm assuming it by 2014, you've accumulated a few hundred thousand dollars in assets and you're like, okay, now what's the finish line look for us? What's this happiness piece? And how do we kind of bring that home and finish it? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think there's a, it's important to recognize that the money in itself is not the happiness. The money is just the vehicle that enables you to explore the lifestyle that's going to make you happy. And so I don't think it's enough to retire from something. Sure. You can want to leave your job. You can want to run away, but you have to be going to something. You've got to have that destination of what do I really want to do with my time? And that's the ultimate question for us. How do we want to use our time? So if time and money are your most precious resources, the way in which you use your money can really enable you to explore that use of time in ways that are fulfilling to you. And when I talk about happiness, a lot of what I'm talking about is fulfillment and finding a position in life, a job, a role that's really personally gratifying for you, whether or not you're being paid, whether or not you need the money. And that's very much where I am now. I've chosen to be a writer. That is not necessarily a uh, stress-free occupation, but I love it. It brings me so much delight and joy to do it. And being able to choose that career is transformational to me in creating days that I enjoy. I just enjoy how I spend my time. Okay. You hit on like a hundred things that I want to circle back and and talk about. I want to talk about first the high savings rate, because you mentioned that. And I I really want to focus on that. You're saving 70 or 80% of your salary What does that look like? Is that rice and beans for dinner every night? Is that peanut butter sandwiches for lunch? Or is that, you know, a more doable thing? You know, all these people that we talk to say, oh, I had a really high savings rate. Well, are you sacrificing your life because of that? Or is it just, you know, something easy to do? I love that question because our approach is all about luxurious frugality. And I know people say, luxurious forgot, lady, you are crazy. But listen, (laughs) I really, I really believe in this because I don't think that frugality is sustainable or enjoyable or even makes any sense if you just don't spend any money. You sure you could spend pennies and you could eat beans out of a can and you could live in a tent. These are all things that you could do. We did not do any of those things. We really continued living at what I would consider to be a very high level of luxury convenience, but we We stopped spending on all the things that did not bring us deep and lasting fulfillment. And so we cut out a lot of things that were just ultimately unnecessary. And then the other piece is that we found frugal substitutions for things that we love to do. So a great example are yoga classes. I love going to yoga. In the city, I was going to yoga three nights a week for like $20 a class. I mean, just you know, thousands of dollars every month. And what I realized is that I could volunteer at the front desk of the yoga studio, check people in, mop the studio afterwards, take out the trash and get free classes. And so that was a very small expenditure of time for me. It was about 30 minutes in order to get free classes. And a trade-off like that, where then you're then saving many thousands of dollars a year is fantastic. And the other piece of that is that I made a bunch of friends. I was part of the community of the yoga studio. I loved working at the front desk. It was, it was a lot of fun for me in addition to being this financially fantastic idea. So I really encourage people to isolate the variables of what makes them the happiest. And if it's yoga class or it's CrossFit, whatever it is, there is a frugal analog for that. There is something that you can do in order to reduce the cost of that. We also love to drink seltzer, which is sparkling water. (laughs) This is the most ridiculous example because people- No, no, no. This is my favorite example. Mindy has had it. (laughs) I will say that Liz's husband is exceptionally handy. That is yours. And he- Yeah, but this isn't about me. He's I, okay. Tell the story. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but I love this story. Like this is such a great idea. I would never have thought of this, 
But you're saving a lot of money. I mean, when she says that they drink a lot of seltzer, I don't think that you really understand. I think that's all she drinks is seltzer. She keeps herself very hydrated with her seltzer. Water. Very well it's just water. It's just sparkling water. I don't put any sugar in it, I swear. No, so, but, but you can't just like go and blow bubbles in there. You have to do it with a machine. You do. You need the intervention of a machine. So... This is an example where, you know, someone who is going to extreme frugality would say, oh, well, obviously you're going to give up the seltzer and just drink tap water because that's free. Uh, No, we did not give up the seltzer. My (laughs) husband, who is very handy, and we detail this process on our blog. So if anybody wants to do this, you really can follow the steps. It's actually quite straightforward. We hacked our SodaStream machine to hook up to a 20-pound canister of CO2. And so this now costs us, you know, pennies. And I do the cost breakdown on Frugal Woods and you can read through that. But the key with a soda stream machine where you're spending the money is on the inserts, you know, the, the CO2 inserts that you have to swap out. And we were spending, I think it was maybe $40 a month on those. We now spend, I think it's $60 per year on this CO2 tank. And I have to tell you the evolution of the seltzer, because originally <laughs> Let me tell you, we were buying two liter bottles at the grocery store. All right. So that's the most expensive way to get bubbly water to your home. It's also very heavy when you don't have a car and you're walking back from the grocery store. So my devotion (laughs) to this stuff is very profound. So then from there, we bought a soda stream that is less expensive. And then from there, we hacked it to use this CO2 tank but it gets better. We originally bought the CO2 tank from a beer homebrew shop because it's the same CO2. I looked at the CO2 tank and it had a sticker of a welding supply company on the side. And I was like, this homebrew shop is getting it from the welding supply and then marking it way up at the hipster homebrew shop. So I called the welding supply. Sure enough, it's half off at welding supply. So we now, (laughs) it's the same thing. They were just like hipsterizing it, like putting a bow on it, you know, at the homebrew shop. So there's always a cheaper option. And you know, what kind of underlies this story is how much fun it is to make these discoveries. This was truly enjoyable for my husband and I. I mean, I cannot tell you how excited we were and then excited to share with other people. And so I think it's when you see it as an enjoyable aspect of life and you see it as a competition and you see it as really a way that you can innovate and be creative, it becomes a lot of fun because we live in this society of just use an app for um, anything that you need. And, you know, what I'm advocating is use your brain, be creative, be innovative, find ways to get what you want without spending money. Okay. See, now we do that at our house too. You make it into a game. And now I'm in this like decluttering my kitchen mode because I can be kind of a hoarder when it comes to food. That's my last bastion of hoarderism. So I'm trying to get rid of things. So now it's like a game. What can I do with this random assortment of stuff in my refrigerator and my cabinet so I don't have to go out and buy something? And there's websites you can use to do this. And it's just, it's a lot of fun when you gamify it. It's not such a like daunting task. It's not like, ugh, I can't spend any money. No. How little can you spend? Like, what can I get my monthly spend down to? And this article is fabulous. The the detail and the, oh, I could, I could cut money there. I could cut expenses here. I love this article. I'll link to it in the show notes so everybody else can read it and love it too. Awesome. I, I think it's great. I think that the mentality you speak to is how do I do, you, you, said, you said it yourself, how do I do this, the things I love as cheaply as possible and find ways to make that economical. And it's that applying that mentality to all of your favorite things, I think is absolutely a key to 
not only just saving money, but loving your life while you're doing it. Luxurious frugality, right? You don't even have, you're so luxurious. You probably don't even drink tap water anymore. It's all this, (laughs) this uh, seltzer water, right? So It's, it's fancier than me. And it's also a question too of once you eliminate or reduce these expenses, it's not for one month, it's not for one year, it is for the rest of your life. And then if you invest, which is something that I espouse doing, you are then reaping the benefits of compounding interest on all of those dollar amounts. So people might say, oh, you're saving $60 a month, a thousand, what does that even mean? Well, put it into a compounding interest calculator and you will see what that means over time. And so my husband and I cut each other's hair at home that's thousands of dollars saved over the course of our entire lives. You know, so it's not like I'm going to suddenly start getting my haircut in a salon for $120 again, which is what I was doing before. It's a lifelong question of eliminating that expense. And it's also a question of skill building. So I now know how to give pretty good haircuts, as does my husband. I've even had friends say, could he cut my hair too? I'm like, well, he could. I mean, you know, if you want him to. <laughs> so it's, you know, you're building out this set of skills that really is fun. It's an enjoyable thing to do. And it saves time. That's another misconception about frugality. It takes so much less time to cut your hair at home. It's like 15 minutes and you're done versus commuting to the salon, sitting there waiting, doing it, commuting back home. Never again. Yeah. It's like a three hour process for me. And I, my hairdresser actually lives literally across the street from me, but she doesn't cut hair in her house. So I go to her salon and that's my one splurge, but I cut Carl's hair. <laughs> I was just saying, I, I know that I know that because Carl, we cut Carl's hair at our house. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, Mindy did. So, so I got a question here. Going back to this is, and again, this is prior to the transition where where you moved to the city. What were your what were you doing for your big three expenses? Which for most people are going to be housing, transportation, food. So how are you managing? I mean, in order to have an eighty percent savings rate, I'm, I'm assuming you have to you, you have this you apply this mentality to your favorite things, yes, but you also have to have strategy for the the big ones, right? Absolutely. And I am a fan of thinking about the big three, but I also encourage people not to be myopic and only think about those three. You got to think about every single line item that, you know, you you can't get to a high savings rate by just looking at those three. It's not possible. Guarantee it. So for those three, so we own this home in Cambridge, which is now a rental property. And that was another aspect of our plan all along was to turn that into a rental. And so that can be a really good option for financial independence. It's a great source of passive income for us. Of course, I, this doesn't need, goes without saying that Cambridge is a good rental market. And, you know, that's not guaranteed to be the case everywhere at all. So we have a pretty high mortgage on that home. And we, there was not really a whole lot we could do about that. We actually did consider renting it out and living in a smaller place because we were underutilizing the asset by living in it, totally underutilizing it. It's a single family home that was much too large for us, but we wanted a single family so that we didn't have any HOA restrictions when we turned it into a rental. And it also has a lot of bedrooms, which is ideal for the grad students who rent it because we live walking distance to Harvard and MIT. So that was, you know, kind of the long-term vision with that house, not ideal to be living there. So we talked about renting it out and moving. We didn't end up doing that because ultimately we just, it would be so much disruption and we were having a baby as well. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not moving like twice with an infant. So we stayed in the house until we moved and started renting it. In terms of transportation, the city is the best place for cheap transportation. So my husband biked to work every single day 
all winter long. Yes, in Boston winters. And so that's that's a very cheap way of commuting. We used public transit. We walked most places. I actually drove to work in a 20-year-old minivan with over 200,000 miles. So that was a luxury to have a car, but it was also a super cheap car to insure and maintain. And we had all of those backup transit options. So we didn't need a super reliable car and we didn't need a second car because that car would just not start some days, but I could just like take the bus, you know? So it, it's it's nice when you're in the city because when you have those backup transit options, you can really get by either with no car, which we did for many years, or with a really old crummy car that like, if it doesn't start, you can still get to work. So it's not a huge deal. And then um, in terms of food, the city was a great place for frugal grocery shopping because you have so many options. So we checked out every single grocery store in the area. And we just, we found the cheapest. It's Market Basket. So if you're in New England, you must shop at Market Basket. It is the best. Um, But we really questioned, do we need to shop at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods? We do not. So we went from like, I don't know, a thousand dollars a month on groceries to 300. And we did not sacrifice the quality of our food. You know, we eat mostly organic, high quality foods, We do cook everything from scratch at home. And from scratch, I mean, like we make our own bread, we make our own hummus, we make pretty much everything from scratch. And by we, I 100% mean my husband, I do not cook. So I have to clarify, (laughs) Um, you know, but when you cook with the base raw ingredients, you can buy really high quality, great meat, great produce, and, uh, you know, really nice whole wheat flour. And you just, you make it yourselves. So we transitioned away from packaged foods, prepared foods, that whole food salad bar that we were doing like three times a week. Yeah, no. So (laughs) This is after yoga. This is great. So we'd go to yoga and then walk to the Whole Foods salad bar. So that's 20, 40, 60, like $80. (laughs) Absurd. So finding an inexpensive grocery store is very important. And then looking at buying in bulk, cooking from scratch and cooking at home. So stopping eating out, people will not be surprised, is transformational for your budget, especially in the city where there are so many good restaurants. So we ate breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, coffees, everything was at home. We totally stopped going out during that time frame. And what I will say now, we actually go out to dinner once a month. That's our our date night. And that's kind of our one chosen time to eat out, but it's a very conscious choice and it's a very special celebration. It's not like, oh, whoops, it's Tuesday and we forgot to make dinner. So I guess we have to go to McDonald's. It's not that at all. It's, um, you know, something that we plan for. And so I think just making that decision, okay, am I going to have restaurant meals? If I do, how do I make them special and not just an accidental, oh, I forgot to cook type of situation. And that's really important because when you don't make it special when you go out every single night, all of a sudden you have an $85 meal, a $112 meal, a $200 meal. And you're like, ah, whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were just at Camp FI a couple of weeks ago, Scott and I, and there was a guy there, FI 180, 180 FI? FI 180. Yeah. He was telling about how he and his wife would go out to dinner every single night and they'd go to these like $600 a night restaurants and it was like no big deal. And they didn't like totally appreciate it. And yeah, that's that's really, really important to, you know, to make it special so it is special. And also, I would like to say that your husband is a phenomenal cook. Oh, thank Holy you. cow. <laughs> Holy cow. 
I think I'm a good cook and I make garbage compared to him. So that's, that's also very helpful. (laughs) Well, and what I will say too, is his cooking has gotten better because he does it all the time. So he just last night made this like Korean kimchi beef recipe that he's never made before. It is unbelievable. It's like better than a restaurant. And it's just because he cooks all the time. And so he has gotten better. He's, you know, he watches cooking shows, he reads books. And so when you start to do this stuff constantly, you will get better at it and you will start, it will start to become a hobby. You know, and for him, it's really a joyful hobby because he gets to create these amazing meals for this totally appreciative audience. That's me. I eat everything he makes. That's the other thing. If you're the one that doesn't cook, you just eat everything they cook. You never come. I never complain. Um, It's always good. And I think to what Mindy is saying, you know, when you make luxuries like like eating out rare, your happiness that you derive from it will absolutely increase. You know, and it's a question of hedonic adaptation. And it's a question of if you repeatedly expose yourself to anything that's enjoyable, food, alcohol, whatever it is, you're going to deaden the response that you have to it. And you're going to require higher and higher levels of that. And we see that with our spending too. You know, if we spend more and more and more in pursuit of this elusive happiness, there is no end to that versus when you do what we do, which is you just completely step off of the consumer carousel. You completely stop spending money. You will then find that the times that you do spend money, it's very meaningful. The, the one or two lattes in a really fancy coffee shop that I have every year, they're like the best lattes I've ever had versus <laughs> when I was having a latte every afternoon and it just didn't even matter to me. So I've got two quick questions here. The first is you made this transition to, you know, working at the yoga shop, you know, cutting back on certain things, learning how to cook, changing up where you shop, all this good stuff. What was your timeline like for reducing your expenses? Did it happen overnight or did it take you a year or two to to get from point A to point B in terms of spending? Um, how'd that look like? So when we made the decision to retire early and reach financial independence, we made the decision in a really big way. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be this sudden about it. But for us, I mean, it was absolutely an overnight decision. We had planned to go out to dinner that night and we did not go out to dinner that night because we thought there's no point in waiting. We're not going to change our minds. This is what we want to do. We're going to start now and we're not going to look back. So it was a very strategic and decisive thing. And we truly started the next day. And what we did in the first month of what I call extreme frugality is we cut out everything everything that was not necessary. And I actually run a challenge, a free month-long challenge on Frugal Woods called the Uber Frugal Month Challenge. And that tracks the steps that we took. So if you want to truly save as much as you can possibly save, take that challenge, do what we did. And then at the end of that challenge, what my husband and I did at the end of that month is we said, okay, how did this feel? What do we want to add back in? And that was where the questions of things like seltzer, and yoga came to light where, you know what, I'm not happy not going to yoga. Like I need to figure this out. You know, I'm not happy not drinking seltzer. We need to figure that out versus, you know, it wasn't that bad not to eat out. We had some great meals at home. We really had nice state nights with our boxed wine and our candles. And, you know, that's fine. (laughs) And we can, we can keep doing that. And so I think it's a question of bring yourself down to truly the lowest that you can spend. 
and identify how that feels. Keep very close track of how much you save. Calculate that out over the course of the year, over the course of a few years. And we were so overwhelmed and impressed by how much we could save that that really prompted us to realize, okay, we can do this. We can do this in a short period of time and we're motivated to save that much. Okay. So you said you cut out everything. You obviously can't cut out like food and water and your mortgage payment and all of that. What exactly did you cut out? So the restaurants is huge. I got to tell you, restaurants, lunches out at work, coffees, haircuts, dry cleaning, really anything that was not mandatory. So clothing, I have actually not bought any clothing in four years, four years now. And I have been pregnant twice during that time. I am pregnant right now wearing my hand-me-down maternity clothes. So I used to shop at thrift stores like just constantly. I bought things at thrift stores all the time. I thought, oh, that's frugal. I'm at a thrift store. No, it's not if you do not need it. So really coming to terms with clothing is usually not a need and recognizing that across all of our spending. Household wares, you know, uh, throw pillows, decor, candles, those are not needs. <laughs> and that is how you go to Target and come out, you know, with a $300 bill is by not just buying toilet paper. And so truly isolating the variables of what we needed for survival and, and being very careful in price comparisons, you know, comparing costs of toilet paper per square foot or inch, however they do it, you really can save a lot when you do that and focus on buying the least expensive option that you have. So it's it's a really holistic view of what you actually need. And I have to say for us, you know, we were never huge spenders, but we were certainly spending a lot more than we needed to. And I think for a lot of people, you know, when you do this practice, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that first month. There are subscriptions that you've forgotten about. There is someone to clean your house, someone to walk your dog. There are so many endless numbers of services that if we start insourcing it, we can save, you know, usually really large amounts of money. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. So what? Uh, how long did it take to get used to this? And what did you be- add back in besides the seltzer and the yoga? So I think it takes at least a year to, to really get used to this because I think you're, we were very focused on the dollar amounts at the beginning. It's very much like, okay, we're not buying this. We're not buying this. We're not. Okay. We're very clearly honing in on saving money and it's fun because it's a game and it's a competition, but I have to say over time, it becomes so easy because it's just second nature. Now, I mean, we really don't think about it all that we don't budget. We don't project out how much we're going to spend in a month. It just shakes out to be really frugal because that's what the philosophy that we've ingrained in our lives. So over time, it really becomes very easy. So you do it the first month. It's hard. Anything that you try new, a diet, an exercise program is very hard the first month. And then if you just keep doing it, it just becomes what you do. And so the things that we added back in are things that we felt that we needed in order to sort of increase our happiness. So things like the yoga, the seltzer, which actually the yoga though, that's not, we didn't spend money on that. So that was, you know, finding a substitution. And then now eating out once a month um, at a restaurant is a great example of an expense that we've added back in. We could certainly stop doing that if we 
needed to save more. But it's something we choose to do. And I think we also added back in more high quality groceries. So at the very beginning, we sort of didn't eat any meat and we still don't eat a lot of meat, but we eat more meat now just kind of cycles through our diet a little bit more regularly. And it's also, you have to also question when it makes sense to spend money because finding things used or secondhand is primarily what we do, but it's, it's not actually always the cheapest route to go. And so being strategic about what you do spend money on. I think a good example of that is our chest freezer. Living in the country, you've got to have a chest freezer to store your food in and we looked at getting a used chest freezer on Craigslist because we get everything used. But then we realized that the chest freezers on Craigslist would use so much more electricity and energy than the brand new Energy Star certified appliances, which were only, you know, $80 more new. So we bought new. So, you know, doing that analysis and kind of bringing that presence of mind to the decisions that you make. We also have a Prius, a Toyota Prius, which is a hybrid vehicle. We bought it used in 2016. It's a 2010. But that was another conscious choice to buy a car that will save us money over time because we spend so little on gas over time. So bringing that kind of wholesale understanding into how you live, that it's not always about just finding the dirt cheapest option, but what's going to enable frugality over the long term. I love it. I think it's a fantastic approach. And this is the baseline for achieving financial freedom. I mean, you, it's really hard, I think, to to make the progress that you've made that almost pretty much everyone that we've talked to has made without having this frugality layer in place first. That said, there are two other areas of personal finance we haven't really covered in depth yet. What were you doing, if anything, on the income and the investment fronts while you were moving toward this goal? And I am really glad you brought that up because I write a lot about frugality and simple living just because it's fun, but it's really important for people to understand that you, A, need to have an income that's high enough to enable you to save, and then you've got to invest because that's the only way to build and grow your wealth. You cannot just stuff it in your mattress or put it in a savings or a checking account. You can't do that if you want to see it grow over time. So we invest in low-fee index funds. We use Fidelity. We have FSTVX, which is very similar to Vanguard. Guards option. The fees are actually slightly lower on Fidelity. And we ended up with Fidelity because our 401ks through work are with Fidelity. So we've just concentrated all of our accounts there. But either VTSAX through Vanguard or FT, FSTVX through Fidelity are what you want to have low-fee index funds. So we're invested there. We then have this rental property that I mentioned in Cambridge, which is a great revenue generating asset for us. We did a serious analysis when we moved sell versus rent. So that's important to understand what your rental market is, what your sales market is, what your tenant population is. And then of course, taking into account things like vacancies, maintenance fund. We have a property manager, which is, I think the best decision we've made being moderately long distance landlords to a I don't know, 160-year-old house. We are very happy with our property managers um, and they've, they've really done a great job for us. So identifying whether or not you're going to pay a property manager, lots to think about with whether or not you want to serve as a landlord. That has worked out well for us. So we're, we're very happy with that. And then we also have 401ks that we had from our traditional W-2 jobs when we had those. So those are also invested. And we have a donor advised fund, which is a way of giving to charity in a way that's tax advantaged. So you're able to take the full deduction of your contribution in the year that you put it into your donor advised fund. 
And then you're able to met money out to nonprofits over the course of your lifetime, essentially. And so a donor advice fund is a great idea if you're experiencing a high tax year and then you anticipate having a lot of low tax years. So for example, if you're retiring early and you can kind of see, okay, this is going to be my really high tax year, probably followed by lower tax years. And you know that you want to give philanthropically. It's a great idea to consider putting money into a donor advice fund. And then we also own our property in Vermont, which is a 66 acre homestead with a house and a barn. But I will tell you that we actually consider it zero dollars in our overall net worth because rural property is not guaranteed to appreciate or even remain static. It's a tough sales market. If we were able to recoup what we put in it, that'd be great. But honestly, we just consider it zero, which I think it's, it's really important to know where your real estate shakes out and, you know, and, and whether or not it's actually an asset or just a great place to live. And we just think it's a great place to live. And then, of course, we have, you know, some cash, which is what we would consider to be an emergency fund. We have 529s for our daughters, which is college savings accounts. And I think that might be about the full portfolio of our assets. But again, the key is being invested, whether you choose real estate or you choose Lothian index funds or, or how you, you choose to do that. It's very important to be growing your wealth. It's not enough just to say that you've got to then turn it over into making more money. Okay, so because this is bigger pockets, I want to ask about your property manager. You said that you have a property manager that you love, which is mm-hmm. ideal, but not easy to find. How did you find your property manager? Because a real estate yeah. isn't your thing. Like you're not. It's not my thing. No, okay. Mindy knows because I emailed her when we were <laughs> it's like, Mindy, you're my gosh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, real estate is not our thing. And I I think it's telling that we only own one rental property, even though we could choose to diversify and own more. Um, It's not, you know, we don't feel that we know enough about enough other markets. I think we would buy again in Cambridge just because we are so comfortable with that market. But we, you know, we just have not expanded beyond that. We know the Cambridge market so well because we house hunted there for years and we looked at, you know, absolutely everything that came on the market. And we made the decision to buy our house in like 20 minutes. I mean, we looked at it, we we absolutely knew price per square foot. It was the lowest price per square foot and it was single family home, great area. Anyway, so choosing the property manager, I think I just got lucky. I called around and researched online and asked friends for recommendations. And I spoke to every property manager that I could get on the phone with. And just to get a sense for what pieces of the rental they managed, I wanted somebody who did everything from finding the tenants to preparing the lease, to handling the leaky toilet. You know, we wanted to be essentially as hands-off as possible. And that was what they offered. And they also offered it at a fixed rate every month, which was not the case. A lot of other managers I talked to were going to take a percentage of the rent. And that percentage was going to end up being a lot more than this other company that offered a fixed rate. And I think the reason that they do the fixed rate is that they are the ones who rent it out initially. And so they're being paid by the tenants. So in the Cambridge area, and this is not true everywhere, but you essentially have to have a broker in order to find a rental property. And you have to pay a fee to the person who's renting it out to the sum of first uh, first month's rent. And so that get, went to the property manager. So that's kind of how they took their cut on the front end, which was fine with us because they rented it out for higher than we would have priced it at. And they found us fantastic tenants. They did the photographs, they listed it online. So 
a lot of that burden was taken off of us. They did all of the vetting of the tenants. They prepared the leases. And we were very, very happy to outsource that because uh, Massachusetts law is very much in favor of the tenants. Yes, it and is. the landlords. Very much. And so we did not want to be self-generating a lease and like hoping we were getting it right. right. Uh, we did not want to be, you know, running afoul of how you select tenants or how you vet them. And so uh, having a professional do that was really worth also the peace of mind. So I think knowing what your state, you know, what what the um, how that law shakes down is important. So for us, it's a lot of peace of mind and it's not it's a pretty insignificant portion uh, overall of what we're bringing in from it each month. Okay, great. Awesome. So, now, you know, we've talked about your investing here, your high-level frugality. Can we talk about the transition itself? When did you know you were ready? How much, you know, how much had you had you saved up? And then what happened before, during, and after that? Like, how? what was your mind like? What, were you still working? All that good stuff. I don't know if you ever are really ready in, a, <laughs> in an emotional <laughs> sense. <laughs> No, because it was such a big move for us. And we also had a tiny baby at the time, which just kind of added to sort of the, the, is this the right decision? Because we moved to a place that is extremely rural. We have about 400 people in our town. Turns out they're fabulous. It's a wonderful community. We love it. But we didn't really know this coming in. And so we're moving from, you know, this extremely urban area where you've got arts and culture and thousands of people to like this little tiny hamlet. So we were, it's nerve wracking. So we wanted a house that was built relatively recently. And this one was built in the 1990s, not the 1790s, which most of Vermont is very old housing stock, which comes with all of its wonderful charms and unique challenges. <laughs> so finding a house that had, you know, new plumbing and new electricity and floors that were level. My poor husband replumbed our Cambridge house and it's like, I don't want to do that again. So this was the place for us. And so it was a little bit accelerated on our timeline since we just had a baby. We closed on it in January, 2016, and we moved up here full-time in May, 2016, and then rented out the Cambridge house. I think it was a June 1st lease. So it was a little bit faster than we'd anticipated, but financially it was a very comfortable spot for us. And we did consider ourselves financially independent at that point and, and still do. And the reason, one of the things that, that made the move very easy is that we have high speed fiber internet here. And so we have the ability and the option to connect with the broader world, to work if we so choose, and to really have access um, that is not very common in a lot of rural areas. So I think accelerating our timeline did make sense for us at that point. It was it was the right place to buy. And I think this is where frugality can really help push you over the edge because when you're able to save truly a lot and you know that you can get by on a very small amount, I think that you have more flexibility than if you have uh, much higher spending and you sort of need to be earning at a certain rate. Um, and so for us, you know, our assets and our, our passive income outstrips our spending. And we, I don't share the exact numbers, but but we are financially independent, which is a very privileged and gratifying thing to be, to not have to worry about where your income is going to come from. And that's, that is so important. And you can now choose 
to be a writer. You say you really enjoy it. You get to do what you love. I know that Frugal Woods is a very successful website, but even if it wasn't, you could still <laughs> devote all this time to it because you want to, not because you have to, or I can't do it because I've got other restrictions on my time or other requirements for my time because I have this need for all this money. Exactly. And it's, it's the ultimate liberation to suddenly not need to make money. And, and what I find is that when you're in that position, you can do the work that matters the most to you. And for me, educating people about frugality and about financial independence and financial literacy is my greatest passion. I, do, I love, like, I cannot stop talking about it. Obviously, I'm here talking to you all. So it's, you know, being able to do that on a daily basis is the most wonderful, fulfilling thing for me. I, I absolutely love doing it and being able to choose to do that. And I think importantly, Mindy, what you touched on is I can do this even if I don't get paid, which is really important because it means I don't have to sacrifice the quality of my content. I don't have to take on sponsorships or products that I don't believe in. I get to do what I think is right at all times. And that is, I think, the greatest way to run a business or a website as it as it has sort of grown into a business. But being able to stay true to, to what you really believe in and finding that opportunity to kind of meet the world's greatest need with where you are most passionate and successful, I think is going to be the most fulfilling aspect of this whole adventure for me and for my husband. Yep. And well, I think it's awesome. If you're not having fun, then why do it? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, what is the point? You know, if you're not enjoying <laughs> your life, what, I mean, what, why are you doing it? What, why are you, what are you doing this for? Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Scott, shall we segue to our new famous four questions? Yeah, let's move it. Let's do it. Um, okay. These are the same four questions that we ask every guest. And one of them is actually a really tough one that's going to attach your mental fa faculties to the to their limits, <laughs> I think. But we'll, we'll get to that one later on. The first one is, what is your favorite finance book? So my favorite is Your Money or Your Life, which I think oh. a lot of people probably say. But the reason for that is that it combines a mathematical approach with a philosophical approach. Because I think in order to really be successful with your money, you've got to do both. It's so easy to say, oh, you know, finances are just math. Put them in a spreadsheet. But if that were the case, you know, we would not spend emotionally. We would not find ourselves in debt over emotional purchases that we don't need. And so I think it's really important to marry the two and understand it's a question of transforming your mindset in addition to understanding the math. So I think that book, which was originally written in, I don't know, the 70s or the 80s, is a, is a yeah. great example of how you need to have that dual approach. I think it was actually written in the 60s. Oh, it's, was it really? Uh, oh. Yeah, I was listening to her. Uh, it was written by Vicki Robbins. I was listening to her interview with uh, the Mad Scientist, and it's, it's a great interview. She's got so many good points. Yes. So that's kind of the original financial independence writing, I, I think, is mm -hmm. how I think of it. Yeah, it's a great book. We will link to that in the show notes as well. What was your biggest money mistake? We didn't really talk about money mistakes that you made. Well, the, really the biggest money mistake was not having a goal after we bought our first home. So we bought that house and then we just ramped our spending up because we didn't have anything we were saving for. You know, we'd achieved this huge financial goal of buying this house and we didn't have any real plans. And so we just started spending more money on, you know, like craft beer and leather boots and manicures and just things that are just... <laughs> 
not okay. We do still buy a lot of craft beer. Mindy's laughing because <laughs> we do buy a lot of beer. That's no, I'm, I'm laughing at the manicure because I met you post FI life and <laughs> you're not a manicure kind of girl. <laughs> not in my head. So, you know, that was the biggest mistake we made. You know, we really lost out on a lot of savings in those years because we just were spending mindlessly and without a goal. So I think when you want to change how you spend your money, you need to first have a goal and you need to first know where you want to be in the long term before you ever get to a spreadsheet or a dollar sign or a dollar amount. I love it. None of the rest of the, none of the rest of this matters. No one's going to try to become frugal. No one's going to learn about investing. No one's going to want to deal with yep. managing tenants or buying rental properties if they don't have the goal. In this case, of financial freedom and yep. what that's going to bring into your life besides money, the happiness component. Right. That's Absolutely. that's the key to all of this. I love it. Liz, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out on this journey? Oh, whoops! We kind of just gave it. So. All right. So it's a two-part piece of advice. So identify where you want to be in 10 years, in 20 years, in 40 years. What do you want to do with your life? Your money will follow that. Okay. So think about that first. Now you're looking at your money, track your expenses. You have to know how much you're spending every month. Also figure out your income. I cannot tell you how many people come to me and they are not sure their net versus their gross know what you're actually bringing home every month. Be really clear on that and understand then what the gap is between your spending and your income. Because there's three tenets really to financial independence. It's income, expenses, and time. And so once you know those variables, you can make really conscious decisions. Don't try to guess your spending. That's like your weight on your driver's license. It's a lot lower than reality. (laughs) Just, you know, actually track how much you're spending. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's a great way of, of, of stating the equation that I have. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways, Very I think simple. it's no more complicated than that. There's a lot of nuance in there, but really just thinking about those three pillars gets you off on the right foot, I think. Yes. Awesome. Now, now this is the most mentally taxing question of the lot here. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? This, you assume I go to parties that aren't just toddler parties. <laughs> I will not tell you the toddler joke party. Toddler jokes. Uh, so people ask us, you know, we moved to the woods. Why didn't you move to a yurt in the woods? And we say, well, that's because we think camping is pretty intense. <laughs> I love oh it. I love it. That's Scott's Mindy favorite. Mindy laugh. <laughs> Scott tells these jokes that's a great pun. like that all day, every day. <laughs> I love that one. Intense. Get it? <laughs> My husband and I like do a version of that joke pretty much every day. <laughs> That's going to be the title of this podcast, Intense Fruit And we laugh every time. I know. You, you think I'm kidding. No, the number of puns we've done on intent, because what I always said to him is he's a man who would live in a tent like by himself. And I always told him, I'm not going to live in a tent with you like in the middle of a field. I'm not doing that. So that was how that started. Because he totally would. I could see that. Well, let's let's hear about the last question here is where can people find out more about you? But can you also tell us a little bit about your most recent project you've been working on? Um, I've heard it's pretty cool. I would be delighted to. <laughs> so you can find me online. My blog is frugalwoods.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at frugalwoods. 
I am very consistent online. So anywhere you see Frugal Woods, that's probably me. And I recently wrote a book, Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. It is published by HarperCollins and it comes out on March 6th. You can pre-order the book. And if you order the book by March 13th, I will send you a free signed book plate from me, from the homestead. (laughs) And I have the details on my blog on how to do that. Okay, I will put a link in the show notes for the book and how to get the signed book plate. And I'm going to order my copy as soon as it's over. There you go. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. I am so excited. I can't wait till that book comes out. I saw that. So I went and visited Liz up in Vermont. Was that August? In August last year. July or August. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it it was a great trip and I saw her book there like I'm like oh I didn't know the book was out already she's like oh no that's just the cover like mock-up it was a plain empty book with just the cover on the outside I'm like oh I can't even read that I thought I was gonna get some like sneak peek but I did not so I'm very much looking forward to getting this in real life my book plate too yes you can get you can get your book plate as well Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really enjoyed this. I love your story. I love your, just everything about your story and how you you started off not frugal. And then you had a period of, let's call it forced frugality, making $10,000 a year and saving $2,000 in New York City. You said you were responsible for rent, but isn't rent like $10,000 a month? Like, how did you? Well, not if you live in the neighborhood that I lived in. Ah. <laughs> Which I actually have a whole chapter on this in the book um, because it that was a time of what I would say extreme personal growth and a, a real understanding <laughs> of my privilege. And I have never understood privilege or just how fortunate I am uh, after living in, in the neighborhood that I did live in where my rent was, I think it was $555 a month, which you can imagine what kind of apartment it was. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> that That's not a common rent amount in New York. It's not. <laughs> so were you in Manhattan? Central no, Park West? In, yes, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, we were in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and I had two roommates, two wonderful roommates. And it was, I think it was technically a one bedroom and we kind of made it work as a three bedroom sort of <laughs> so that was how it was imagine some curtains or something like that. Uh, yeah well my poor roommate joseph sort of slept in a closet he was very um very kind to allow us to take the larger rooms and he he was like i'm a minimalist it's great and he totally made it work <laughs> so so it worked out but uh, you know ultimately it was just it was not a safe neighborhood at that time um, which I, you know, talk about a lot, kind of the experience of living there in the book, because it was very transformational for me and understanding the importance of money in somebody's life. Well, I just have a ton of respect for your the, your foresight and planning you put into this, the discipline you had in executing it and the courage you had to to make the change and, you know, get through all those obstacles in the way, including living in this $550 a month apartment in, in Brooklyn. It's just fantastic. I think it's just something that I think that so many people should think about, hey, is this something that's repeatable for me and something that I can do uh, for myself and and go and and achieve the happiness that I'm looking for? So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on uh, today, Liz. Good luck with the book. And we wish you the very best and look forward to watching your journey and your, uh, your community continue to grow. Thank you so much. 
All right. That was Liz, Mrs. Frugalwoods. Thanks so much for having her on the show. That was a great podcast. What do you think, Mindy? I love talking to Liz. I could just talk to her every day, all day long, all week long. I really like how she shares her story and how easy it is to do what she did. It's, you know, like I said before, she's not looking for ways to give up everything and live this totally hard life. She's looking for ways to make it cheaper to do exactly what she wants. And she is. I have not met anybody who's a happier person than she is. Yeah, she I mean, I mean, she embodies this whole thing. I, I mentioned earlier in the show, but of planning, the discipline, the you know, courage to take action. And the reward is lifestyle is exactly what you want. That is meticulously chosen bit by bit to be exactly the way that she wants to spend her day. And that's a privilege that she has earned through all the all the cool things that she's done, which just kudos to her. Yeah, you know, I think that's really that's a really important distinction. She's earned this. This wasn't just handed to her. She didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to be frugal and everything I want has come true. You have to make some changes in your life and earn this life. But look at the life she has. That's yeah. a life worth making changes for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and by the way, she's also very articulate and able to communicate these things in really kind of unique and creative ways that are really kind of easy to digest. So if you haven't uh, got a chance, go check out the Frugal Woods blog. I believe that's frugalwoods.com. Yes. And then you can also check out her new book again, which is Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living on sale tomorrow. So yeah, big thanks to her. And, and I wish you the best of luck with, the, with that book and spreading that message to everyone. Yes, I, I know she's going to sell a batrillion copies of this book. It's a, she's a great writer. You know, I like, I, I'm a big fan of her blog. She's, she writes from, I mean, she's a woman, so she writes from a female perspective. And a lot of these personal finance blogs that I come across are either written by men, which isn't bad. I'm just not a man. They're either written by men or people without kids. And her ideas and her, you know, the, the things that she shares, I really relate to. And, you know, I just, I have a love of the English language and so does she. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And I think we need, we need many more female voices in the personal finance community because it does tend to be a little bit male dominated sometimes. And, uh, uh, you know, the why, the reason behind achieving financial independence is should be just as strong for everyone. Right. Uh, and so we need to get as many folks on there as out there as possible spreading this and kind of understanding what it, the why behind why females might want financial independence might be slightly different from the why of, of men. Exactly. She's able to create and, you know, generate an income while still pretty much staying home with her kids. Yep. So that's, she's one up on me. I was able to stay home with my kids, but I generated $0 when I did it. Yeah. <laughs> and my future unborn, unconceived trenchlings, uh, we'll see what happens. For that. <laughs> how many, how many do you want, Scott? Seven. Seven. seven, yeah. Seven, seven trenchlings. <laughs> Good luck, Mrs. Scott. A lot of sporting events. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine taking seven kids to seven different sports? Wow. Okay. None, well, none of them I, are going to play quarter. None of them are going to play what? Quarter. M Mindy, by the way, does not allow her children to practice the recorder in the house, oh which I goodness. find very funny. That's the worst thing ever. That's the most obnoxious sound. And every <laughs> every note sounds the same. You'll see when you have seven little trenchlings going through third grade, blowing on this dumb recorder, you will be like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> well, okay. Should we get out of here and let everybody go home? We or should get out of here. you after listening to this podcast? Listen to the next one.
Oh, that's uh, right. We should get out of here. So from episode 10 of the Bigger Pockets Money Show, this is Mindy Jensen over and out. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.